Hello, and welcome to Kick Out 299. I'm Rachel. My pronouns are they, them. I'm Alicia. My pronouns are she, her. And today we have not one, but two fantastic guests with us. Sarah and Dana, if you could go ahead and introduce yourselves, tell everyone who you are, what you do, and where everyone can find you. Hi, I'm Sarah Kerchak, she, her. Um, I am mostly a writer these days. Also, I think this context matters for this episode, a retired professional pillow fighter under the name Sarah Bellum. Uh, and I'm Dana, uh, also she, her. Um, I post uh, some wrestling translations and stuff. I'm on Twitter at It's Dana Now. That's my main platform, but I'm not really on Twitter these days. I'm also on Tumblr at Nakano Tamu. All right, awesome. And today we wanted to do something a little different. So we brought on two longtime fans of two major Joshi companies, Stardom and TJPW, to uh, each discuss one of their favorite major rivalries from that company. And of course, Alicia and I aren't super familiar with Joshi. We do watch it from time to time. So we're really excited to learn more about these stories from our experts, Dana and Sarah. In addition, we will also be sharing our experiences and thoughts as marginalized fans in the wrestling fandom. So without further ado, let's open up the floor to this forum and get into it. Today, I requested a little bit of show and tell from both of you, asking you to bring us a rivalry from your respective promotions and tell us a little bit about it. We sort of decided before the recording who was going to go first, and we're starting off with Sarah. You will be talking a little bit about TJPW, and we'll be talking about a very relevant rivalry, and that's uh, the original Ito Respect Army, Maki Ito and Mizuki. That's correct. Um, I was actually wanting to pick something maybe a little more obscure to prove that I actually watched the promotion religiously and wanted to highlight other people. But this is the feud that brought me to the dance. And um, I think it's one that's sort of burbled under the surface for a long time compared to some of the more obvious rivalries. So the fact that it's having this moment now and yeah, I went back and watched some of the early stuff over this past week. I'm ready for it. And it's definitely, I think, the one I want to highlight to bring everyone into how I see this world. Yeah, you had mentioned that uh, it was sort of what got you into TJPW. And actually, when I was sort of first getting into TJPW, I wasn't really following a lot of like the storylines and things going on then. But I do remember uh, Maki and Mizuki. I remember the MV, the music video they put out to the uh, the song, their, um, their, their war song, yeah. Um, yep. Cincinnati. Yeah. Yep. I listened yes, to it right it. before we started recording. Um, man, it's a banger. With all due respect to Brooklyn and the whole, that's like Maki's ultimate song. You're right, though. You're, you are right. I do like Brooklyn and the whole, but, but that song is better. But yeah, can you tell us a little bit more about how these two came to be and their relationship through this tag team, this um, Edo Respect Army? Because that's really sort of how they started out, isn't it? 
Yeah, it is. So they got together about a year before I came into the picture. Um, In 2017, they were both kind of outsiders to the Tokyo Joshi crew at that point. Um, Mizuki was a veteran, but she wasn't homegrown. She was just sort of coming into that world at that time. And Maki Ito was famously the fired idol who um, had burst into the scene in DDT in Tokyo Joshi, um, full of enthusiasm and not much in the way of talent yet. Um, If you watch her in those early days, it's a miracle to see. And I want to be careful here because I really hate when people especially say this about female artists. I used to experience this when I was a music journalist all the time. Like female musicians did not want to be told that they were more entertaining when they were less technically proficient at their craft. And that makes perfect sense. So I don't want to say early Ito was better, but there is something really captivating about watching her in those early years. And so she kind of just barreled into Tokyo Joshi and then into Mizuki's life. Um, When they had a match in April of 2017, their first singles match, Maki Ito is there in one of her early costumes, not the one she got from Don Quixote, but, you know, very basic, very sort of Sailor Moon ripoff-esque still with the big puffy sleeves that sort of exaggerated that like angry kyphotic posture she would rush into her wrestling with, just sort of charging into the scene with not much in the way of self-esteem, but perhaps too much like pumped up self-confidence which of course fails apart because Mizuki is just a more skilled wrestler who knows what she's doing at this point Mizuki promptly like promptly defeats her and then Ito grabs the mic almost like she was the victor here and gives this beautiful speech about how she wants Mizuki to be member 001 of the Ito respect army and Mizuki with the first of what will be many perfect straight man reactions to Ito has this sort of meme like, haha, what the fuck look on her face, but she agrees. She actually addresses this a little bit in the video that was released on the Tokyo Joshi Pro Wrestling YouTube channel. I think as we're recording this, it was today. Um, It obviously won't be by the time this airs. And she was saying that this Ito lived in a completely different world from her, but they were both kind of outsiders at that point and that they found some kind of strength in each other. So they just went for it and they became the Ito Respect Army and uh, probably lost the first match together um, for all of the same reasons that Ito lost against Mizuki. But they start to gel a little bit. Ito starts to learn more moves. She picks up a body slam from Mizuki. And they make it past the first round of the inaugural Princess Tag Team Championship tournament. And then they go on to lose, but to the first champions who first won the belt, which are like the Miracleans. So they're getting a little bit of effective, but clearly not dominant yet. What they do have do do however is get their own theme song record a music video and wreak a lot of havoc and win a lot of hearts along the way so this is where I come into the picture in the spring of 2018 I've been sucked back into wrestling because my friends got me hooked on the golden lovers story and I was all about these like 
tag team partners who loved each other, but were also competitive in each other's rivals. And I thought, wow, that's really dynamic. And so I got a Wrestle Universe subscription and started to get into DDT, telling myself I was just going to go through the Golden Lovers archives and then maybe back off. Although I'd heard wonderful things about DDT and subsequently got sucked in. But one of the things I did with the subscription was think, oh, well, it's time to get into some Joshi. So I found a recent English digest because at the time, Mr. Haku was actually doing English commentary over recent shows with whatever guests he could get. So I got to watch it with like actual translation and figure out what happens. So I'm watching the show. It's all very interesting. And then I see this like overconfident, ridiculous Maki Ito charging into a batch and losing while Mizuki is seconding her. And then she does this screaming over the top speech after about how like, I lost again, you must be losing faith in me. I understand if you don't want to be part of the respect army anymore. And Mizuki looks confused and makes all those weird faces she makes against Ito, but says like, no, I still believe in you. Let's do this. And then Ito, of course, like makes it all about herself. Like, oh, you are the most supportive and best member of the respect army. And gives her this overpowering hug and then insists on singing herself out and they walk out triumphant together even though she's lost and it's but at least they have friendship so that was it I was sold on this like the Edo respect army were my team I was all for the like overconfident woman who didn't know what she was doing yet but could probably figure it out and the person who like believed in her above all else even if it was going to take work to get her to the point where they could be a really effective tag team. And then I subsequently got my heart ripped out in August of that year when um, Muscle JK, which was Rika Rikasaki and Marika Kobashi, um, had to relinquish the tag team titles, which they held at the time because Kobashi got injured. And so they held a tournament to determine a new winner but instead of just putting the actual tag teams they had at the time into this tournament tournament they did a lottery draw and the respect army were broken up by this not to be petty and pick fights but I did see a tweet recently in wrestling twitter where someone said that like people put together in these tag tournaments never get along and there's never been like a successful oh we're actually friends that came out of it but that's not true because the person that Mizuki ended up with in this lottery was Yuka Sakazaki and this was actually the birth of the magical sugar rabbits who ended up winning this tournament however the magical sugar rabbits in the, fin the final of the tournaments went up against Raikasaki and her new partner Maki Ito. Um, and when it came down to it, Mizuki pinned Ito. And Mizuki is totally chill about it. She is obviously starting to develop that really intense bond with Yuga. You can even see it in the way they're already clicking together in their matches. But there's a, an obvious affection for Ito too. And Ito just does not have the like lack of ego to accept it when Mizuki goes over to hug her and she just sort of petulantly pushes her away it's weak it's like she doesn't even give her the finger in this moment which is like the classic Ito response 
Um, it's just this sad little push. And then Mizuki literally cries into Yuka's chest as Yuka hugs her over it. Um, and then Ito stomps away and they have a little spat. However, in August of that year, they have like a grudge single, no, sorry, not August, September of that year. They have a grudge singles match and it goes to a draw. On the mic afterwards, Ito will say, even though it's a draw in my heart, I know I was going to tap. So she doesn't feel like there's been any sort of common ground here. She still feels steps behind Mizuki. However, they both grab the mic and they're able to reach a little bit of a truce. Um, and I'm just gonna read you some actual quotes from Mr. Haku's translations that he posted on Twitter at the time because I found them like really interesting and just like a great counterpart to the other tag team feuds I thought I was emotionally invested in at the time. And it starts with Mizuki basically crying as she's saying, I need to fight against you more and tag with you more. There isn't enough time. Ito like, yells at her, says, say what you really want. Um, you have this other tag partner. Um, Mizuki adds, is there anything wrong with working with someone because it's fun, because you want to? And then they sort of slap each other, start crying. And then they say, I look forward to working with you again. And they walk out of the ring hand in hand. Backstage, Mizuki adds, I went into the match, not sure of many things, but now I know more about Ito-san, more than the crowd knows, and I believe she understands how I feel too. I want to fight with and against her more. Ito talks about challenging with Reikasaki in this match. She said, I realized that I get more fired up when I tag with Mizuki. This is something I found out precisely because we separated, so the breakup wasn't meaningless. So they're able to reach this point in a month that took the Golden Lovers about 10 years to get to <laughs> is that we want to fight together and fight against each other that we can have this bond and also be rivals and it's all part of the same thing we are strong together but we're also strong when we're facing each other against the ring so my hot take out of that is that the Edo Respect Army had a more enriching partner feud and the Golden Lovers have been able to pull off thus far. I mean, they have another chance soon, clearly, but I don't really think it'll happen. However, once they reach this, like, beautiful equilibrium, something else happens that maybe isn't as dynamic for pushing feuds in wrestling, but to me is far more interesting. And it's that over time, they do naturally grow apart. That as much as the rivalry and the partnership have fueled them, they sort of move on with their own things. There is sort of a forced breakup when Chris Brooks enters the picture and they briefly bring the original Ito Respect Army back so that Ito can turn on Mizuki in the match and form the Neo Respect Army, which, which is, it feels forced because that rift was already happening. It wasn't as obvious, but it was like having a really intense best friend in college that you start to grow out of. And they both go their own ways. Mizuki um, becomes a contracted member of Tokyo Joshi Pro Wrestling and becomes not quite a pillar, but someone who is integral to that promotion, who I'm sure if anyone comes in now, they would assume she's always been there, that she is one of the originals, because that's like how important she is to what's currently happening there. And Ido has, of course, established herself as an international superstar at this point. 
traveling through America, you know, winning hearts there, becoming every bit of the wrestler that I think Mizuki always knew she could be, but it could only happen when they were apart. And so as they're coming back together now, it's not so much about the intensity of these two people who care about each other being forced together. So it's not like how Mizuki won the belt against Yuka Sakazaki. It's almost like she's more like Mizuki's other opponents who have come from the outside. That Ito is almost a stranger to her now, even though they once knew each other like so intensely and perfectly. And yeah, so now we get to this point where because of logistics and that Ito has been in the States, you couldn't have that heated in-ring rivalry. They've only wrestled a little bit since she got back. And interestingly enough, I believe the blow-off match that we end off on doesn't even have them in the ring together. It actually has Ito with her new tag team partner, whom she also has like a friendship slash rivalry with in Miyu Yamashita. And it shows how much she still can't handle being an equal or occasionally being bested by the person who's at her side. The last thing we'll see of Ido before she steps into that ring with Mizuki is her being intensely frustrated at losing to Yamashita. So we know that's still lurking there, even if it's not about Mizuki. And so now we're getting to a point where the only chance they've really had to talk to each other outside of a few brief exchanges are the YouTube videos that have been like uploaded to the Tokyo Joshi Pro Wrestling um, YouTube channel in the past couple of days. And the first one that came up was Ito's. Um, you can go watch it. It's got English subtitles, so you can actually follow what happens if your Japanese is as bad as mine is. Um, and it starts with, um, I want to say it's almost a postmodern social media era take on Bret Hart being the face only in Canada, is that she acknowledges that when they're in that building together, Mizuki will be the hero and they will only cheer for Mizuki. But she thinks that anyone, everyone watching online will be cheering for her and that the people will believe her online. Then we get to Mizuki, who talks about them more together, which I think is still kind of appropriate for how they started that, I, you know, Mizuki always saw the tag team partnership and Ido saw a little bit more of herself along the way. Uh, Mizuki calls facing Ido for the belt finally reaching her fate and that she was actually kind of afraid about it. She wanted to challenge Ido for that belt but knows that she's not currently good against Ito and didn't want the match because she was afraid to lose. She goes on to say, I've faced her at many turning points. And when I had matches against her, I got power from her. And I feel and I can feel whether I grew up or not compared to her. And so that's where we're off now, that it is sort of a battle for domestic Tokyo Joshi fans versus the rest of the world. But it's also against these two people who were once paving the way for the next generation of Tokyo Joshi Pro together, who now barely know each other, but sometimes when they get back into that ring, there's a spark that they still need to test their mettle against each other. It's going to make me cry whatever happens, but I think it's going to be a really interesting and really powerful main event. That was fantastic. And thank you for sharing. I, I learned a lot. I didn't actually know that that's how Maji Robbie started up, um, which was really, really interesting. To I watched it happen and still had to go back and be like, really? That's where it started? Yeah. One thing that was really interesting, and I want to um, just ask you, what would you say, and 
as you were talking, I was thinking about all these, you know, different parallels of different rivalries that I am more familiar with and um, how singular in a lot of ways these two actually are. They have a lot of things that I don't think I've really ever seen done by anything else. But one thing that actually occurred to me, and I think you'll have something to say about it, was when you were talking about like the domestic fans versus the overseas um, online fan base and the sort of sides they take. And that reminded me of Mao and Endotetsia. <laughs> and that was yes. really interesting to me. So I didn't know if you had any thoughts on that because I know you had followed that feud uh, like I had. Oh yeah, it makes perfect sense. And I mean, Mao straight up made that textual when he said that Endo hasn't connected with the foreign fans and that hasn't put that effort into it. And definitely you saw in any sort of spaces where DDT is discussed in English, that most of the English fans were like, yeah, Mo finally said it. Well, a few of us, you know, temporarily turned on Mao completely. But yeah, that it was interesting. And also like fed into their like visions of the future, which actually is happening with Ido too, who believes that she can bring like prestige to the belt by like taking it around the world and being the international star who won it versus, versus Mizuki, who is building it at home. Yeah, it's definitely a, uh, a parallel that I had caught. Did you guys feel any like similarities to different rivalries or anything like that? Because there was a lot there, especially with like being rivals and, you know, being partners. And then, you know, sometimes partners make the best rivals. And I, I think there's a lot that we can relate to there, um, Alicia. Uh, predictably, I did think of of Nextstream, the origins of Nextstream, because they were by design a group that was coming together to fight the older older generation, but also evolution. So really like Suwama. And, um, but they knew going into it, they were all explicit, the four of them in saying, we're also here to fight each other. We know that we're rivals. And they did it on day one. They didn't wait. Their first comments ever are about how, yes, like we're doing this because we explicitly want to fight uh, Suwama, but we also want to fight each other desperately. We want to fight each other. We want to compete against each other. We want to fight Kento. We want to fight to be the person next to Kento in a tag team. Like they laid out like the entire plan of like what it's going to be like to be in this, um, this group that had a lot of different functions, but they knew that they were going to be rivals and they knew that there's also other purposes. Uh, Dana, I know you have uh, some experience in Tokyo Joshi. So have you sort of been keeping up with this or are you um, sort of aware of this rivalry and what are your thoughts on it? Um, nowadays, I mostly follow Tokyo Joshi through like friends who are still very up on it. So I like know that uh, Mizuki and Ito are fighting and and the stuff about their feud not really getting an an in-ring build but like their history getting put on YouTube and stuff like that um I actually started watching TGPW around the same time as you Sarah um Mm -hmm. a little bit later um so I I just found out that I started watching TGPW like a month after uh Majirabi got together (laughs) which is crazy to me because I thought they were like an institution like I was positive that they had been together for for ages before that but I do remember seeing to respect army like falling apart and and all that uh, and and i really i like that um you know danny you just brought it up and then sarah had covered it that they um didn't really do a lot in the way of like an in-ring build and that sort of creates this feeling of maki now as as an outsider a stranger to mizuki and that that puts a lot of weight into um 
into this upcoming match. And it definitely makes me really uh, thrilled to watch it actually in a few hours. And um, so it'll, it'll be really, really interesting. But one thing I wanted to know was sort of where you think this is heading, Sarah. And um, now with Yuka Sakazaki graduating at the end of the year, do you think there will be a revival of the Ido Respect Army? Because from what you were saying, it almost doesn't feel that way to me, but I would like to hear sort of your thoughts on it and, and where their relationship is and if it's changed too much for them to be tag partners again, or if they could, but the landscape will be different. Like, what are your thoughts there? I mean, if they do come together again, I think it'll be an outside force that makes it happen because as is, they've grown into such different people that I don't think either of them would ever choose it for themselves. So um, there could be like a good odd couple angle for the future, but more likely I think it will remain in the past. Um, and maybe Mizuki will be a lone wolf for a while. That'll be interesting to see where it goes. And I honestly don't know how much of Ido we're going to see in TJPW going forward. I assume she's not leaving entirely, but she might be more of a part-timer than we've even seen now. I know um, she said a little while ago that she probably is going to be spending more time elsewhere, but she doesn't think she could do like what even what even Miu recently did and do sort of more than like two months at a time away just because she doesn't like the travel so much. <laughs> That makes a lot of sense. It's I, I recently saw some quotes around that too. And she was very, very funny about it. I think actually next week is when I see her for the first time, mm-hmm. which I'm really excited about. She's doing GCW. So um, I feel like she's absolutely everywhere, but this is still the first time I'm going to see her. I'm also seeing Utami next week. That was really, oh, really nice. surprising to me. Um, so I'm very excited about that. But uh, yeah, her comments about the rigorous travel was really funny because it is so tremendously different from what they do on their loops back in Japan. Mm-hmm. I also like how she put a positive spin on it, but definitely everything being kind of last minute in terms of booking versus what she's used to did come up. That made me uh, laugh quite a bit, given where she's uh, she's predominantly booked over here. You can just imagine <laughs> the uh, you can imagine the stories that she has to share. <laughs> Yeah, we actually, um, you guys on your, on the uh, last episode, I wasn't there, but you talked, you talked beautifully with Happy Wrestling Land about how like last minute some of the uh, booking for even like Forbidden Door was and how different that is uh, from Puro. So if you guys haven't listened to that episode, please do. It was fantastic. But yeah, like that's, it's something that's just so different when you go overseas and, and realize like these cards just drop like the night before at times. And I can only imagine like people like Maki having to deal with that is it's it's a big big change but yeah summer sun princess is tomorrow so i just wanted to sort of touch base if you're excited if you're going to be watching live what other matches you're excited about um just your thoughts there sort of uh, to wrap up this portion oh man if i don't watch live it won't be emotional investment it will be just not wanting to mess with my lifelong dysfunctional sleep any more than i do but I might end up watching live because my sleep is dysfunctional and will thus allow me to watch. <laughs> uh, probably my number one is going to be Mia Watanabe versus Nyla Rose. Um, I, I don't want to insult Yuka Sakazaki at all. Um, I hope she gets well soon. But I think this actually is a slightly more exciting match than Yuka versus Nyla, simply because, I mean, we're all waiting for that giant swing. Um, and 
just this idea of Mi Watanabe being the local hero who goes against all of these giant foreigners who are brought in so that she can lift them up and throw them around and then swing them around. Um, that's beautiful. Yeah, I was thinking of watching live as well. And then um, Alicia was nodding rigorously because she has also been there. <laughs> uh, she didn't intend to watch live, but the nerves woke her up and then mm -hmm. she ended up watching live anyway. So I thought that was really funny. Extremely relatable content. But yeah, thank you so much for sharing that. And then um, our next rivalry will be in stardom. And it's actually interesting. I've um, While I was listening, I did notice what I think are a little bit of parallels here and there um, and everywhere in this, like Dana's nodding. Okay, cool. I'm <laughs> <laughs> I did a little bit of research, but I, I didn't um, do a whole lot of depth and, and that's paid off because I've been learning a lot. So yeah, so our next rivalry will be from Stardom and that's uh, Natsupoy and Tam Nakanao. And um, yeah, we've touched a little bit on our first episode together, Dana, when we were talking about Stardom and storytelling, we touched a little bit on the relationship that these two had. And you, you mentioned that these two were very close friends and, and are shoot friends. But if I recall correctly, like this rivalry sort of has a lot of history that predates stardom. So can you tell us a little bit about that history and how that sort of came into stardom, how this rivalry came to be? Yeah, so Tam started wrestling in 2016. She started out in Actress Girls, which was also where Natsupoy was active at the time. Natsupoy is an original member of Actress. Um, so she had been wrestling for about a year at the time. So Tam comes in and they were basically fast friends. Um, I don't know a lot of the details of their friendship in Actress, honestly, just because that was, that was before my time watching Joshi at all. I didn't even know about Actress at the time. So I don't really know if they, they tagged together or did much wrestling-wise together. The main thing that's come up again in their story later is that when Tam left Actress, Natspoi, at least as far as the story goes, Natspoi texts Tam her support and says that that she supports her and then, you know, she's her friend and, and all of that. But then in Shupro writes that this is like a, a major betrayal and she doesn't know how Tam could do this to her and and walk out on them this like this. And then, of course, like not very much after that, Natspoi does the same thing herself and just leaves Akras. Yeah, that's their original background. They were just very close in Akras and then were apart for like four years. Yeah, so Natsupoi's journey into stardom is takes her sort of the long way around. She she goes through TJPW actually, and um, ends up in stardom after uh, Tam does, and so they sort of um, collide, and they're not initially on the same side. There, um, Tam comes in. She's already is she in stars or has she started Cosmic Angels at that point? So Natsupoi joined Stardom on the same day as Mina Shirakawa. So Tam had not started Cosmic Angels yet, but like the things that would lead to Cosmic Angels becoming a faction were kind of brewing at the same time. Um, yeah, so Natsupoi came in um, and in, in DDM and they didn't interact for a little while at first. Natsupoi's big thing was that she had been a guest member in Stardom in like mid 2015 or maybe 2016 um, while they were having some roster troubles and and she had wanted to get back to stardom and a big part of that was her relationship with Kyrie, who she admires and looks up to a lot and and winning the white belt because of the the reign that Kyrie had with it so that's that's a big part of her motivation when she gets back to stardom 
And then a few months after that, Tam wins the white belt herself. And that was what brought them into, into conflict for the first time in a big way. Before that point, Natsupoi still had, like, I would say bits of her Tokyo Joshi character kind of attached to her, where in Tokyo Joshi, she was this very, like, she wanted to be nice, she wanted to have fun, and she was, like, a, a rascal more than, like, really mean or anything like that, and she, like, like it felt more prankstery, you know? Um, full disclosure, I hated Natsumi Maki in Tokyo Joshi. I could not stand her. I was like, how... How dare you take this obvious, like, horse girl, private school, mean girl, like, she is such an obvious bully, and tell me that she's, like, a nice girl who wants to be friends with everyone. I don't buy it for a second. And that ended up being what her feud with Tam was about. Um, she's playing the the heartbroken former friend who got betrayed. She, like, professionally prints out these huge pictures of them together that like she still had saved on her phone and stuff like all of their selfies together in actress and stuff like that and like cries over them and tears them up because tam broke her heart so much and tam is just like tired of her the entire time like she's not buying any of it for a second and then in the the title match itself it's natsupoi getting meaner and meaner and meaner and tam pulling these these aspects away from her and showing who she really is and that's why like like is being nasty she like pours water on her and stuff like that like she stops fighting to with the white belt and she starts fighting to hurt and humiliate tam and then um in her in her post-match comments after she cries and she says tam chan how could you you showed everyone who i really am i'll never forgive you for this and that was the start of their rivalry as a rivalry in stardom that's so fascinating because like when you were first talking about it and you had mentioned that sort of the the white belt brought them together I was I was going to be like yeah that's that's really um different than how the um Ido Respect Army were where there wasn't really a belt that served as a catalyst but then as the match continued and as as this sort of the true catalyst um shows that that this isn't really about the belt necessarily it's it's about the two of them it's about who you know Natsupoi really is and and sort of this this mean yak she she is really nasty like, she <laughs> yeah be really mean that's like one of the first things when I had watched matches I was like oh man she is just um just a, a goblin yeah um, and it's it's very enjoyable I really like it but yeah um, like to be clear I adore her now like evil evil Natsupoi is so so enjoyable but yeah I know that that's really just fascinating and then um, sort of how does this continue because they don't stay rivalries for uh, rivals forever which is another interesting sort of um, inverse here to the Ito Respect Army where Mizuki and Maki sort of started out as partners and then drifted apart we have these two who start off you know they they were friends but in stardom proper they're sort of apart and then they drifted together so um how did that happen? How did how did this rivalry get to the point where now we are in Cosmic Angels tagging under Meltier? Yeah, so it fast forward about two years, they interact on and off various, mostly like team-based feuds and stuff like that, but nothing major again after that. So in early 2022, Tam is not having a good year. Um, nothing is going her way and she's depressed. She's at least in story considering retirement. You know, we've all been there. <laughs> um, Natsupoi isn't okay with this and she sort of targets her 
And at the end of a match in Cork and Hall, she calls her out afterwards. And she's like, what the hell is wrong with you? Like, what, are you about to retire? You're just going to give up? Like, this is wrong. This isn't Tam Nakano. You're supposed to, to have more than this. Um, and she's like trying to be mean about it, but it's just, it's just, it bothers her seeing Tam like this. So they agree to, uh, it's kind of a weird format, just like a two match series rather than a best of three or something like that. So they'll have two singles matches and then like a team match is kind of what it works out to. So their first singles match is a steel cage match, um, which was a big deal. It was the first like Joshi cage match um, in some ridiculous long time at the time that happened. Um, It's a very, very good match. I highly recommend it. And the story of the match is like, Natsupoi is so, so angry at Tam and wants to beat her so, so badly because she's such a big rival to her and doesn't understand why she like can't get over her emotions. And conversely, Tam kind of works through her anger through this match. And as the match goes on, Tam has this this thing that I really adore that she does in, in a lot of her big emotional feuds, which is this, like, she communicates this, like, I'm going to hurt you, but I don't want to. And she gets more and more of that as the match goes on, where she's, like, brutalizing Natsupoi, but increasingly realizing that she doesn't want to hurt her. And then ultimately she wins the cage match. So she wins by getting out of the cage and climbing to the ground. And then she's the first person right back in the cage to check on Natsupoi. Then they have a second uh, singles match at Cork and Hall just a couple days later. Like it was two days or something like that. You're crazy. And in this match, Natsupoi is even more fired up. She is incandescent. She's so mad she lost this cage match. Um basically can't see anything else other than this need to be Tam. Whereas Tam, it's not that she's not trying or gives up or anything like that. She's still doing her best, but she eventually there's a point in the match where she just can't fight her anymore. She just can't fight Natsupoi anymore. That's not what she wants for them. Um, and then Natsupoi wins the second match. They're both kind of at this point like I wouldn't say wondering what they mean to each other. It's almost more like not wanting to admit what they mean to each other. And then they're going to have sort of the blow off um, will be a team match between Cosmic Angels and Donna Del Mondo a few weeks later, maybe also a month later. When that match happens, it's an elimination match and it goes until it's, it's Tam and Julia and Natsupoi. And they're all on the apron and, and Natsupoi turns on Julia. She very much betrays her. And then, and then slides down off of the apron to throw the match for Donna Del Mondo. And she's devastated to leave Donna Del Mondo. She's, she's very, very sad. But she, uh, if you watch that match or the promo, it's, it's, I think it's a good team match as well. I'm very emotional. But she like tearfully says goodbye to everyone and then like chokes out a sobbing bipoy to them. So yeah, so then she, she, she chooses Tam over, over everyone. And that's how she joins Cosmic Angels. As far as their beginning as Meltier, they choose the name because they cried together and then their emotions melted together. If I'm remembering my, my translation of the interview where they explained it. They get challenged by FWC, which is the team of Hazuki and Koguma, who at the time had the tag belts. 
and they basically say they're the the hot current thing everyone's talking about them so okay you're a new tag team you haven't earned this title shot but like we'll give it to you because you're a big deal and it'll get us like noticed maybe not the best call strategically but they say they want to be the craziest tag team so okay um so they they have that match and the match is a pretty i think simple but enjoyable wrestling storyline of them both being singles wrestlers and realizing they have to take care of each other to to have any success as a tag team and and they manage it and they they win the tag belts in their first try when they had the belts they they talked a lot about wanting to be the new beauty pair this is something i want to actually talk about because a lot of people are just like oh they're just tag partners now like that's it but their rivalry to me is very much not dead and a big moment of this was a, a very minor thing they got to interview Maki Ueda the surviving member of the original beauty pair and it's an incredible interview um it's sort of been on my my want to translate backlog for a long time because it's very very good but they talked to her and the way Maki Ueda talks about Jackie Sato is just with so much love I might start crying a little bit talking about it I still get emotional thinking of this interview and Nat's voice says that she says the way you talk about Jackie, like it's there's not another word to describe it. It's just love. And I still have this like this desire. I feel so strongly a lot of the time that I can't lose the Tam that like I worry that I'm not cut out to be like that good of a tag partner to her. Like I'm worried that we can't achieve that because of my feelings. And Tam says to her, like, like look hey like I've I've never felt like you don't love me and then they go on and they talk more about the history of beauty pair and, and some stuff like that and then idol stuff yeah they've they've mostly been good since then recently their big thing was bringing in Sariano who is sort of another part of their friendship back in in actress they were also very close with her and she's now also I would say probably signing with stardom because she's been doing like fan events and stuff like that um and she's joined cosmic angels their big thing it's not quite as big as it would have been because Tam has already lost the white belt, so she doesn't have it. But they face each other on the final night of the five-star Grand Prix. They're facing each other in their last block match. And I suspect it'll probably be a really important match um, for the for the block standings and then also, of course, for them. So excellent. I, I definitely started getting a little teary there um, <laughs> with with that description. It was, it was just really beautiful. And um yeah, that's that's really what I wanted to ask you about and talk about was, um, you know, do you feel that these two can be rivals while also teaming? And and I think you touched on that beautifully. And um, if you sort of expect to see them teaming for a while, or if you think maybe a breakup is on the horizon, what are what's your read on that? Is that Tam is the Red Belt champion, and she's saying that she's probably going to retire shortly after she loses the Red Belt, whenever that is. Um, I'm not 100% convinced that that's like a shoot thing because I have been following Tam's work for six years now and she has been talking about maybe retiring for six years now. So like, like my dream is that Tam keeps going until she's 80. Like one day she can just start her own promotion, work the office, you know. So, so I don't know. I definitely don't see them breaking up. Um, the question is, is, is whether or not Tam's still going to be around for for a long time or for not very much longer or what. Yeah, that's that's a really interesting point. And it sort of brings me to um, what I kept thinking about and the parallel I kept thinking of. And I don't know, I, I wonder if Alicia actually came up with the same parallel, but what I kept comparing these two to was the reunion of Axis. 
and Shiyazaki, <laughs> she laughed at me. Um, so Shiyazaki sort of down on his luck, down and out. And um, then of course, Nakajima approaches him for a reunion, but there, the way Meltier comes together has so much more build and it has so much more heart and it feels so genuine in a way where the Axis reunion really doesn't. And it's just really interesting to compare those two in my mind and sort of think like, you know, how, you know, Noah could have done this differently and, and broken it into like these matches, like the cage match. And I, I don't think Shiyazaki can do a cage match right now, but <laughs> I would not want to see that. But, um, but my point still stands where um, Meltier put on, you know, this, this series, this big emotional series to sort of bring them together. And that feels in a lot of ways more genuine heartening and engaging like yeah these two are going to be together for a while where with axes it's very um it still feels very unstable it still feels very shallow and that's by design I, I really enjoy that like I'm not bashing axes here for once in my life but um it, it's just really interesting to compare those two I didn't know if Alicia if you had any thoughts I didn't go there only because really? Meltier feels so beautiful and, and genuine and, and quite powerful but that's why I really love Dana being here to talk about this and also Sarah being here to talk about um, what she presented as well, because these are very powerful, palpable stories where you can feel like the love and the friendship and all these different elements that come together to form these stories. Axis is a lot of things, but Axis right now is a front to sell t-shirts and they're hyper aware of this and they've been telegraphing this to the point where they have them walking around backstage going up to the merch stand and saying, how are the t-shirts selling? Because they're aware that they both exist in this form right now to sell t-shirts. So, but, but your, your point is inherently correct. They could have telegraphed this differently so that you can get to a place where they both have that sort of conversation in the way that Dana just described as well, but they are not getting there because they went in the other direction where they're telegraphing that this, there is a front to this. It's not the same thing. Whereas like there's this beautiful, little bit of catharsis right in meltier that is like so like enamoring and also with tjpw and stardom they have some of the best named things i'm just gonna say in general <laughs> like meltier is a great name mm -hmm. magical sugar rabbits that's an incredible name like just really good named things our cry off from sweeper but, um, <laughs> no that's mean <laughs> But no, I, I agree. And I, I think that's um, exactly what I was getting at was that feeling of catharsis that you get in, in Miltier, even just hearing the story. Absolutely. It made me want to go check out that that series immediately. And you did a really amazing job sharing that and, and then also getting us excited for that uh, five-star Grand Prix. So <laughs> sort of selling the, the promotion there. Uh, but yeah, what that's sort of, uh, let's, let's wrap it up in the same way. We've got um, Stardom's Midsummer Champions event just happened. And then of course we've got the, uh, the Grand Prix. So what are your sort of feelings and major takeaways from, uh, from the show? Because Tam is champion right now. So um, what do you, where do you foresee uh, that going? I know she talked about retirement, but like you said, <laughs> um, I'm kind of in a place where I'm trying not to like predict stories very much right now just because like I, I get too attached to to my theory um and then even if it if the story that it does go is really good but it's not what I wanted I, I sometimes get really disappointed by that 
so yeah, I'm trying not to get like super, super into predicting stuff for it. Um, I'm actually kind of upset with them right now. Tam just lost the the white belt to Mirai at Midsummer Champions. I like Mirai. There's like weird discourse about Mirai on Twitter, but I I avoid that. Sometimes my friend said it to me, and I'm like, no, I don't want to see this. <laughs> but yeah, so so Tam losing the white belt to Mirai was it's one of those things that doesn't feel like a story it felt like them booking themselves into a corner and sabotaging the story in order to get around their own booking the feud feels like it was supposed to be Mina versus Mirai and they would trade the tag belts and the white belt but they realized too many people saw Tam and Mina going to a draw so they had to put both belts on Tam Mina and Mirai have a lot of history together from Tokyo Joshi and then their their time inside him as well and stuff so that would have been a really good emotional feud to both cement Mirai as an underdog babyface and Mina is sort of a very cocky more heelish type nowadays while still not breaking the streak of Mina never having beaten Mirai and instead we got Mirai kind of coming into her own by beating Tam but in sort of like an unemotional way because they have no real connection to each other. Mina's run ending up being very disappointing where I didn't. I didn't hate that she lost on her on her second defense. Sorry, um, to Tam, because the the story of like, oh, I'm gonna prove that I don't need you to win. I'm gonna prove that I can step away from you and be better than you. And then just falling on her face and completely failing and being proven wrong. Um, I I still found that enjoyable. I think there's still a lot you can do with that. I still think Mina did a lot with that. But the stuff with Mariah might have been more meaningful, depending on how how it went. And conversely, Tam had this momentous win, like being the second double champion ever was a big, big deal. And I was ecstatic when she won those belts, but then it kind of just just petered out and made it feel like her red belt run kind of hasn't started yet. And ultimately, she just kind of said like, yeah, okay, I hope Mariah has a good run. Like if you are a bad white belt champ, I'll come beat you up but just kind of washed her hands of it and was like, I have bigger stuff to focus on. So yeah, it's, it's, I don't think stuff like that happens a whole lot in, in stardom. Otherwise I would not enjoy it as much as I do, but yeah, the, the really recent stuff feels like the, the booking got in the way of the story. Um, I am excited going into the five star though. I'm seeing people predicting Utami winning it and, and possibly beating Tam for the red belt. I think Utami probably is on a bit of a, a come up right now. Um, she just recently had her whole thing with kind of hopefully finally becoming a good leader for Queen's Quest. Um, and now she's doing her her first uh, little US tour until the start of the five star, which was really surprising because stardom hasn't really worked with outside companies since such a long time now. My prediction though is I don't necessarily think the five star winner is going to be the person who beats Tam. I think a lot of people are seeing them as sort of one in the same thing right now, just because the past couple of years, the five-star winner has then gone on to win in December. I think they're going to break that pattern a little bit this year, and and the winner won't be the person who who beats Tam, and either it'll be someone with a closer emotional attachment to Tam, and then she'll be like, she'll, she'll take back some of her retirement comments, be like, well, I still have more work to do, or they'll give Tam like a mammoth run if she's really retiring afterwards. Mm-hmm. I often see like whenever a tournament comes up, like it it's almost one of those things like, oh, the winner's definitely taking the belt. Like it, it's, yeah, yeah I, I see it all the time, but, um, but yeah, um, Sarah, you, you were a fan of Mina when she was in TJPW, weren't you? If, oh yeah. I was a Mina yeah. girl. <laughs> yeah. That's so, by forever. Yeah. 
have you been following sort of where she's at in stardom and, and this, this booking stuff that Dana was talking about? Cause you know I've seen a bit of it too. Yeah. From afar. Um, it's, uh, I just don't have the focus to actually follow another promotion. It's nothing against stardom, but yeah, it's, I am always going to pull for her. And every time there's discourse or I can at least follow a plot line on Twitter or other social media, or, you know, sneak in a stream somewhere. Um, yeah. That, that girl has, woman has so much heart um and yeah like I, I think she does amazing character work uh, she's grown so much as a wrestler and just like has such a passion for it if you just like watch her anytime Jushin Thunder Liger comes up you know that her heart is all in it so yeah <laughs> and you can always um find the stuff to follow through a lot of Dana's work that she does a lot of amazing translating work and um, and obviously Sarah does a lot of really good writing work for um, for wrestling as well and, and she talks about it quite a lot on her Twitter which sort of brings us to the second part of our discussion which is about um, where we sort of stand in this fandom and um, I know Alicia and I had sort of called this uh, this under the tent as the no boys allowed <laughs> um, and and sort of uh, episode where, where we just sort of discuss a lot of these things that have been going on in the fandom and um, our role as as marginalized fans as, as you know non-cis men I'll, I'll just say it and I wanted to just sort of open the floor more or less but um, I'll start off just sort of with talking about um, our guests experiences uh, Sarah, you have not only been in the wrestling fandom for a long time, but you've also written articles for um, MMA, UFC, isn't that right? Yep. Yeah. So what were your experiences like as a female writer covering a sport in a male-dominated um, sphere and, and just sort of how, how people approached you for that, if you don't mind sharing? You know what? People were out for my blood and there were people who supported me and loved me and I wish they had said something at the time because it wasn't until years later I found out that I actually had like fans outside of my friends. Um, it probably helps to give you the context that I was never strictly a reporter or play-by-play -play person in MMA. I was a writer for Vice's Vertical, which was called Fightland. And I mostly covered sort of the intersection of mixed martial arts and pop culture or just like the cultural aspects of martial arts. And I had a background in music journalism from the 2000s. And so I was never like super mean, but music journalism at that time had a very snarky edge to it, especially in like, you know, Indian rock, which is where I was from. So there was a weird growth period where I can understand why some people got a little mad at me because MMA reporting in the 2010s was super earnest um, in a way that I don't think was entirely genuine either because it wasn't earnest about talking about labor issues or, you know, sexual assault behind the scenes or you know any other actual political aspects or for example how there are certain dictators in the world who have laundered the image of their country through their fighters in the UFC there was there has been a little more open to that after I left but yeah so I was this sort of snarky person not saying 
So this punch happened at three seconds, and then this kick happened at four seconds. And I'd be like, here's how this match happened. Here's how it's reflected in the world or something like that. And I was the only person with a noticeably feminine byline who also had a Twitter account. So not only were people mad at what I'd written, they were mad that there were women writing for Fightland. And the brunt of that always came on me. There were prominent MMA journalists at the time who just hated everything Vice did on mixed martial arts. So anytime they got mad and drummed up their followers, their followers went straight to me as the target for everything they hated about Vice's coverage of martial arts or any coverage of MMA that wasn't, here's how this kick happened. Which, I mean, I never tried to do that, but also, I mean... Their beloved Joe Rogan could not call an actual omoplata attempt to save his life. So they were even picky and choosing about who got to be right and who got to be wrong in those spheres. And you know what? It made me really, really bitter and really defensive, but also I got kind of snotty and fought back a little. Um, I probably did some of my best writing ever when I was covering MMA, especially when I just decided to start provoking people a little bit or to write about the connection between pro wrestling, which I had kind of grown away from a little bit in that phase, but was starting to appreciate, you know, as an art form in of itself, even if I was more into the the real fighting at that point. So just exploring those connections, just being able to talk about, I did one article where I argued that like for, the generation of women that were fighting in the 2010s in different MMA promotions, probably a lot of them had a deeper emotional connection to pro wrestling than the men of their generation because they had more like tough combat looking women to look up to and be accessible in terms of like mainstream exposure in fake fighting than they did in the real deal at that time. I know that when I was actually fighting and thinking about maybe having a potential future in MMA very briefly might have been smack girl in Japan at the time was the only promotion that had my weight class so there weren't fighting opportunities but there also weren't role model opportunities in MMA so um yeah I my thesis is that there was that whole generation of MMA women who you know saw themselves more in a Trish Stratus or Alita then they were able to see themselves in their own counterparts in their own sport um so yeah I got a bunch of hatred from that and I think you can still see the really snarky defensive edges I get whenever anyone tries to criticize my opinions about wrestling now um because yeah went through a lot um if Fightland hadn't folded when it did I was really fighting to have a man's name as my byline and write pseudonymously um because I was absolutely fucking done with that sharing that because that that is it's it's a lot and and that is a fantastic thesis by the way so anyone who snarked about that just my god um, but but that yeah and um yeah I I think there's a lot of really interesting stuff there I think it's um 
you know, my, my next question was if you um, feel a lot of, you know, these sort of things you have experienced and if you see that in the wrestling fandom as well, and, and right off the bat, I, the first thing I noticed was that, you know, people getting mad when you don't talk about things in, in play-by-play mode, or if you don't talk about wrestling in a certain way, in a specific flavor. And that's something that Alicia and I can, can relate really deeply to as well. So um, I'm glad you had mentioned that. And it's such a boring way to explore. I mean, obviously it works for some people because they do it, but it's just like, there's so much more going on. Just open your heart to it. And I'll, I'll say too, because obviously I can't relate to Sarah's experiences in that I, I've never covered any of this professionally. I never covered MMA or anything like that, the way that Sarah has extensive experience, but where I can relate to Sarah is that we've both been in like jujitsu gyms and experienced mm-hmm. that culture which is incredibly male dominated unless you're very lucky and that you end up in a gym that has a lot of women around. That's not always the case. Um, Mm. I wish I could be on a podcast just talking about my experiences training jujitsu. You know, I would, I would love to talk about it more extensively because there's a lot of good, but there's also so much bad that comes with doing that. And I just want to share this, this anecdote that is so specific to, I think, I think everyone that's on this podcast will relate to this in different ways. So there's a million and one reasons why anyone would walk into a jiu-jitsu gym and want to do jiu-jitsu. It's a great thing to learn. However, when I, when I joined and when I had, you know, been there for a little bit, um, my coach, who was one of the best people there, he was amazing. He was so supportive of me. He told me, you know, everyone meets at the bar down the road once a month for UFC pay-per-views. And I was like, great. I watched them anyway. I've watched UFC Mm -hmm. for years. I'm there, no problem. And I'll never forget that like after that point, it felt like different random, maybe well-meaning men on my team kept approaching me and saying like, hey, and it wasn't just, do you want to come to the pay-per-view on the weekend down the road at the bar? They were trying to explain to me what UFC was. And I like, I'm not being dramatic. Like this was the experience of they, I walk in the door and they look at me and they don't think that I would come in the door because I watch MMA and because I had spent six months living in Brisbane watching Kazushi Sakuraba and in pride matches. And that's why Mm -hmm. I wanted to do it. No one thinks to ask. They just assume that, you know, they perceive whatever they perceive about me. They look at like my, you know, fluorescent pink nails and they think like, well, she couldn't possibly know what UFC is. So they're trying to explain yeah, well, yeah. to me. Cause you're there for self-defense. UFC. That's right. I'm there yeah. just to learn some like throws for self-defense purposes. I couldn't possibly have any other interest in that. And I had to keep stopping people and saying like, I know what UFC is. I watch every pay-per-view. I don't miss a cable fight. I, I know I got it. I'm good. And I remember like, it's the tone of surprise element that I have found in MMA circles, but also in pro wrestling circles. Mm -hmm. I'll say that he, I'll say that a teammate followed me to my car because he wanted to walk me to my car, but I didn't want him to. So Mm -hmm. he followed me to my car. um, And he was asking me about coming to the bar, but he's going through the whole like thing of like explaining what UFC is. And I had to be like, like, I know, I know what it is. I watch this stuff regularly. Like I know. And he's like, you watch UFC and it's like oh they God. never have spoken to a woman in their life who could be interested in this and have not only watch it but also know what they're talking about because at the time I was splitting my time between 50% wrestling and then 50% MMA 
So I was watching, like I could name like top 15 in every division. Like Mm -hmm. I knew who people were. I knew the news. I kept up with it regularly. I could hold conversations. I really loved it. So, and that leads you into other areas of trouble because it's also not good to be perceived as an expert, which is something that we run into all the time, just talking about pro wrestling. So that was a very interesting experience to run into pretty much right away. And is in this only like a little bit of like the issues of, of like being in a jiu-jitsu gym in <laughs> yeah, a, in a very male dominated. Yeah. That's just only one of them <laughs> of numerous, but I'll never forget the constant tone of surprise. And I think that's what yeah. we also experience. And, you know, I don't want to speak for anybody else. I, me and Sarah talk about this a lot. <laughs> we, yeah, know what I we, know. we know each other's experiences with this, but I think that's, um, that's the thing that always kind of gets me is it's the tone of surprise. Oh yeah. Like pro tip, any cis dudes who are listening to this, who are like wanting to have more meaningful conversations with other people about any culture, like start by presuming competence because the worst case will be that someone will think you gave them the benefit of the doubt and didn't lecture them right away. And best case is you will actually find a peer that you can talk to. And if you can like handle that and don't just want someone to like be a blank slate to project your own views on, you're going to have a great time and you won't have insulted them right off the bat extremely well said I know I've also I think like one of my first experiences in wrestling fandom was me complimenting someone's Samoa Joe shirt and Samoa Joe like come on now and they're like you know who this is a a girl knows who this like straight up and and I used she her back then but like Mm -hmm. yeah it it was and it it didn't really occur to me at the time but um, my friend had gotten angry on my behalf and that sort of just informed inform this fandom and and it's really has not been disproved since mm-hmm. and that's that's always sort of been how it is and it, it hasn't really grown but yeah so um thank you for sharing your experiences I know uh Dana the Joshi fandom is also for the most part very <laughs> much dominated by cis male fans um and how has that affected you as a fan translator who translates predominantly for stardom. And I know if you're comfortable sharing, do you have any experiences relating to being a trans woman in this fandom? So as far as like direct interpersonal interactions, for one thing for me, it's like almost exclusively online. So I haven't had to deal with like running into someone in person and and talking about it, any of that stuff. But as far as like direct interpersonal interactions, it's been pretty much fine. And I think I've, I've, been really lucky in that regard and I think it's due to a few things like for one thing I don't hide for a second that I'm a lesbian and that I'm trans and I think a lot of like the really shitty people just avoid my work right off the bat because of that I also um would like to think that just like cool people happen to find my work you know but also I am not starting a business I'm not really making any money from this I think I have a couple people who chip me like 20 bucks a month for it but I, yeah, I'm not trying to to start a brand. Um, so I block judiciously. Like I am quick with the draw button. If your vibes are just like anything less than perfect, I'll, I just don't need you on my timeline. So, and I think that's that's helped me a lot as well. Um, for me, it's more like, for one thing, there are so few people just looking at it in the same way I do, coming from the same place as me. I, I run a private server with some friends who like I met through wrestling, like it's a, a queer wrestling server. There's so much, uh, it's so often like, wow, like everyone who looks at this, like we do, like is here, like we're it. 
so it's it's kind of isolating and like I also see attitudes where it's just so assumed that there just isn't anything in Joshi in in modern Joshi that would appeal to women like it's just taken for granted that there aren't any fans like me it's like I'm right here and and it's in in so many different ways it's in people talking about how like oh it's missing what it had in like golden age Joshi and it's like well all Joshi, like, that's not really a, a style thing. Like, every Joshi cup, the whole bubble crashed, you know? Mm-hmm. It's in the way people talk about the, the sexualization of Joshi wrestlers, which is, like, obviously the fandom is so, so dominated by men. And there are absolutely some, like, just gross creeps. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's also, like, I, I can't demonize being attracted to women. Like, lots of them are attractive. Lots of them want to be seen as attractive. Even if they are trying to sell you a t-shirt, like, through it, like, that's still part of what they're going for. Um, but there are a lot of people who are on on the other side of it that are, like, it, it feels, like, obsessed with not being seen as a gross guy. But it becomes, like, the bad thing is being attracted to women and and almost desexualizing the wrestlers to the point of not seeing them as women. It's like, no, that's that's an important part of it. Like, that's that's just as much part of it as anything else and and sometimes people getting really gross coming from that place as well I saw someone on Twitter once say something like to describe the way stardom presents their wrestlers as like pieces of meat or something like that and it was like that was like that was so gross like the stardom wrestlers present themselves even if your issue is is with gravure or photo books or whatever like they buy their own outfits they are allowed to pick how they pose like that's all stuff they've talked about publicly um so it's, it's like if you don't like it that's one thing but to say it like that it's like you've gone so far in the other direction you're now just demonizing women's sexuality or when they leap off and just completely write any women off because they're just sex objects. And so therefore you don't yes. even have to take their talent into account whatsoever. Yeah. With, with Joshi wrestlers who are like former models, former gravier models or anything like that. Like the way people talk about Mina and Unagi specifically as two of the ones who are, I think most well-known for that. Not mm-hmm. the, the only two are, 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 who have or anything like that. They talk about it like they were doing hardcore porn and like they they made it out of that world, you know, good for them. And it's like, one, it's not the same and you're mm-hmm. like somehow being disrespectful to models and porn stars. Yeah. Two, like Chan Yoda is there. She does do hardcore porn and it's like, you can do that, you know? It's, it's so much of it is bigger uh bigger systemic issues yeah people revealing themselves and I'm glad that you've you've brought that up specifically like I don't watch a lot of Joshi but I see I I, and granted I block and mute liberally so that I don't have to see the kind of discourse that gets attached to a lot of this stuff but I've noticed this incredible trend like you've just demonstrated where people want to so badly act like they are they have like some sort of moral high ground that now they are demonizing any kind of like they want to just erase like sex at all from the wrestling and from the wrestlers but it's like you've now made this full loop into sounding like a psychotic like very conservative figure Mm -hmm. lording over this wrestling and it's like you sound unhinged and it's, it's so 
so uncomfortable to see, but then it reveals like, it reveals a lot of like anti-sex worker positions. It reveals mm-hmm. like all of these different, like awful positions that you can take that are really, really harmful. And then ignore the real life situations of some of these workers who I'm not saying are doing sex work, but some of them, some of them are maybe like some of them are, and then some, you know, some are involved in other things. Some are doing just modeling and then mm-hmm. they're trying to twist that into something that it's not. It's like the, the language we use matters. We have to speak about people using the terms that they use use and speak about it correctly otherwise like you're just you're, you're creating problems for people where there should not be it's really really weird and very I think pervasive when it comes to Joshi in particular because of the way mm-hmm. people want to control women's bodies and what women are doing or even not doing sometimes it's yeah. like a whole horseshoe theory thing that you've gone so far into like not sexualizing this woman that you've completely denied her autonomy in the opposite direction she's still yeah. not a person to you Yeah, and it's also, um, as far as, like, specifically being a trans woman in this space, um, again, like I said, I'm I'm fortunate enough that it hasn't actually come up very much for me, um, at least that I've seen. Um, I don't know how people are talking about me in private, but I don't want to. I do occasionally, I guess not as much nowadays, because like I said, I'm not even really on Twitter, but it's, it's always about the same stuff and about, like, the sexy stuff. Like, like when Mina Shirakawa licks Saya Kamatani's face, like, that is homoerotic. Like, you can talk about why it's happening or, I don't know, people care a lot about where it's coming from, but I don't really think that's what matters in situations like that. It just is. Like, that is a fact and you can't really argue about that part. But then it always turns into, oh my god, this is only for men, the only creepy men like this. And it's like, I'm a lesbian. That is important to me. I do not appreciate being likened to creepy men for obvious reasons. So yeah, I would say more than any any direct interpersonal thing, um, I run into exclusionary attitudes and just the idea that that no one like me exists um, a lot. I think that's, I think those are all fantastic points. And, and it just, it's really interesting the way that these mindsets and and you guys spoke to it very beautifully that um that people are trying to protect these women to the point where it's it's not really protecting anyone and and, and it's excluding a lot of people out of these conversations and including Dana who does so much work for this and and Dana I know you um you've had your work stolen before as well, which to me very much speaks to um, being being a woman, being a trans woman in this space is, is people just will take things. And it's, it's just um, really disheartening in a lot of ways. Yeah, I actually, uh, hopefully this isn't like too personal, but at the tail end of last year, I, I went through like major, major burnout and have been kind of like recovering from that slash trying to find a, a better balance all year this year. And yeah, like the the having my my work stolen thing was so weird. On the one hand, it was kind of a dream come true to like see my translation on the actual subtitles on Startup World. Um, and I got a lot of attention from that. Like I posted it, I posted about it just to be kind of annoyed and, and vent a little bit and didn't expect anything to come from it. And I gained a ton of followers from that. So that was that was pretty crazy. But as far as like working as a translator specifically. I do see a lot, like, don't get me wrong, my Japanese is definitely not perfect. Even if it was, I don't have an editor, so there's going to be stuff I miss and stupid mistakes I make like and stuff like that. But it's just so often that, like, it's so, so obvious to me that all of the other translations are being done by straight men because the emotional context of so much of this stuff just gets dropped. 
And it's like, it's so painful. Like it kills me. And, and Tam has talked in interviews super frequently about how she thinks what makes Joshi wrestling special is the way they make stories about emotion and the way they communicate emotion. And she also like how she also wants more women fans and, and the thing she thinks like separates women as fans is that they understand those emotions better. Alicia and I talk about that all the time with translations, fan translations, how a lot of the emotion gets lost. If you're not watching these videos, if you don't have a good feeling for the emotion that they're carrying and the way that they um, they speak in tone, and, and this is just, you know, us talking about translations, but, um, you know, the, these women are trying to portray this emotion. And a lot of times these, these men are so focused on wanting to seem masculine to make their sport more quote unquote masculine and to almost defend their fandom and that's that's sort of my read on it in that way is they want it to seem like oh no this isn't emotional this is you know tough fighting and they erase that emotion i want to make a point about toxic masculinity because this also relates to the other side of wrestling it's it's in joshi but it's also in the the men's wrestling side of things too because we have men covering the men and there is so much toxic masculinity in the way that they talk about their storylines, but it's unfortunate. And it's, it's just so deeply frustrating because you'll have these people covering the wrestling and they get so close. They get right to the finish line of realizing they're having an emotional experience, a connection to the wrestling. And then they stop just short of that because the toxic masculinity won't let them just get over the line and make them realize that it's okay to have emotions and to experience that kind of feeling about pro wrestling. Pro wrestling is meant to make you feel. And it's insane that we have to listen to a lot of coverage from people who very clearly have not reconciled that within themselves because of their issues with their own masculinity. And what's crazier about that is that because of the way they perceive their own masculinity, they think that their experiences are also shared by the male wrestlers. And that is not to say that the men, the male wrestlers are not also sort of victims of their own toxic masculinity and their own stuff they have to unpack and their own cultural norms that sort of play into a lot of this too. All of those things can be present while at the same time, they very deeply experience these things related to their profession, to, to wrestling, to their art and to their stories. They feel these things deeply. They have deep emotional connections with each other. These things are all real and they exist, but we have people who are covering it that cannot reconcile us within themselves to even recognize this in other men and then push out these narratives that don't actually match and make sense with anything that we are seeing. And it's, it's, on, it's on both sides of it, but it's so confounding and it's like such a, a terrible limiting way to interact with any art, but it just feels so much more dramatic when, when we're, we're talking about art through the sort of medium of fighting. Yeah, I think those are phenomenal points, like really fantastic points. And um, one thing that we had like mentioned is a lot of people on like Twitter were making fun of like men for crying when Sami Zayn and Kevin Owens won the tag belts and things like that. Like um, we, we are emotionally connecting to this wrestling. It's not just in Puro. And, and yeah, I think that's a phenomenal point that you bring up and we as non-cis male fans often do talk about this wrestling with that emotion and we try to bring out the emotion in um 
in that story, like with our writing, with our podcasting, like when we talk about these stories, we are evoking these emotions and then we end up getting saddled. And this is one thing I want to talk about. We end up getting saddled with this weird title of fangirl that sort of divorces ourselves from being analysts and journalists and translators. Um, and I wanted to know sort of your thoughts on this as this mindset of fans who are women or you know perceived as feminine as being emotionally unstable and therefore, you know, fanfic writers. I've I've gotten this actually is I found somebody linking one of my write-ups that I wrote on Nakajima and Keno, which is a fantastic write-up, by the way. You can find it on my Twitter. Um, and you somebody linked it on Reddit with like, I'm not sure if this is fan fiction or not, even though I had like linked translations that I had done and sources and, and match dates and everything. You know, it it's how it is because I'm perceived as a woman and therefore I'm a fangirl. And so I wanted to know sort of your thoughts on that and, and your feelings and experiences with that as well. I am, I'd like to go specifically last on this topic because I do have a lot of thoughts um, about this and how it relates to me as a trans woman, specifically in, in the fandom. And I don't think it's quite the same experience as, as the rest of you um, have with it based on what we talked about off recording. So I specifically want to go last. Super valid. I guess I'll I'll start then. Um, I, this label and I have a very contentious relationship. Um, I've never not been involved in things that are predominantly just, just male dominated, right? So whether it was um, just MMA in general, or when I was involved more in music and when I was involved in film, these are things that have like very specific cultures that are dominated by men in large part and there's it's very hard to to get away from from being considered um a fangirl it forces you into a box where you have to become an expert you have to be the most knowledgeable knowledgeable person in the room in order to be taken seriously because you know that you are going to be perceived that way you know that you're going to be quizzed you know that you're going to be looked at much more critically than anybody else in the room um, so it's, it's sort of an exhausting thing to have to battle. Um, however, I've also learned that the flip side of it is that it doesn't matter how much I know. It doesn't matter how good I am. It doesn't matter, um, how beautifully or wonderfully I speak to any of the subjects that I, you know, know information about. It, it has never mattered, um, because people will always confuse my, my passion and my intelligence and my emotional intelligence um, for that of being, again, a fangirl. It always kind of boils down to that. I think that people who um, use that term or people who don't use that term but still make comments that go right into that area where you just know that that's what they're considering you, that's the box they're putting you into um, in their head. Like, it, it doesn't it doesn't matter. There's not much I can do. Um, I had a very fraught relationship with this podcast actually when we started it because I knew that this would be an issue. I'd be setting myself up for that. And then over time I started to, I guess, um, it wasn't any less angry. There's been some instances that have come up um, that Sarah and Rachel know about because I talked to them both about it um, that have been very deeply uh, frustrating for me. Um, because again, it doesn't matter how well I speak. It doesn't matter how much research I do. It doesn't matter how much money I spend on the research that I do and the translations that we do. Um, it doesn't matter. Like I will still be perceived as 
Um, a fangirl is someone who is not a researcher as a, you know, even like a historian and an analyst, I will never be considered those things because um, of who I am and, and what I sound like. Um, and we'll get into some of the more of the reasons why for that in a bit. But it's, yeah, it's, it's deeply, um, it's, it's frustrating. It's very much, um, again, like very isolating and it's very exclusatory. It really is a barrier to you being able to be a part of larger conversations that are happening um, that there's no reason why I couldn't be a part of or anyone here couldn't be a part of. Um, but that label will keep you out of um, out of these different spaces that come up in, in wrestling and in other spaces too. And it doesn't make it any less uh, infuriating. Oh yeah. So yeah. Um, I have a lot of similar experiences to you in like similar wheelhouses as well. MMA film, um, definitely music. That was like, I dove headfirst into Canadian indie rock when I was 12 years old and like listened to everything I could get my hands on and read everything I could. And there was a cover story for a band I loved called Rusty. Um, one of their big singles was called Misogyny. Um, and it was about spousal abuse and was a pretty clear song. Didn't take a lot to interpret the lyrics. It was all out there. So this cover story on Rusty had this whole hypothetical aside about how Rusty's teenage fan base didn't actually understand their songs and had like this straw 15 year old girl singing along to misogyny not knowing what the word misogyny meant and I was probably 13 or 14 at the time reading this and thinking not only do I know what the word means I'm experiencing it right now by reading it in this magazine and so I was already on edge even before I started to interact at concerts or it like probably four years after I read that article started writing for that very magazine knowing that I would have to defend myself knowing that even some of my colleagues were not going to take me seriously and like I had been quite abrasive about it in my teen years too um my best friend pretended not to know who Weezer was so a boy would lend her her his copy of Pinkerton and I kind of flipped out and caused a whole scene about it it was like we all have the fucking blue album Katie but um (laughs) so like not only was I defensive about it for myself and wanting to prove that I knew and that my investment was more than just like finding a guy cute I was also very panicked about the fact that my interest in an artist could make other people take that artist less seriously like I saw it happen with there's a band called Moist in Canada. They're not the greatest band ever. However, their singer has done some incredible solo work that got completely shit on because all anyone could think is that it's only because he's hot and teenage girls want to fuck him and there's no substance to what he does. So I think I've always been tentative to express my fondness for an artist outside of being like, look at me, I'm an expert at this. I'm putting this all on the table because I don't want other people to think less of that artist because of the way I'm talking about them. And yeah, I've lost my train of thought now. But yeah, I have a lot of issues with the whole like diminished 
fangirl label and have proven my, you know, credentials over and over and over again to have people not care because it tends not to matter. Not all men, but certainly many of them and enough to make you keep your guard up all the time. But also, yeah, trying to figure out how best to express one's interest in someone so that it doesn't blow back on them. And then, you know, getting petulant and might be going a bit too much in the opposite direction because fuck you. That is such a good point. I struggle with that constantly. And like even this week, this is such an innocuous, stupid thing. I almost didn't tweet that I liked Kenta's blue hair because I immediately, when I think about doing something like that and I'm seized with the anxiety of, oh, but all these nameless, faceless people that could see this tweet are going to perceive something about me and make an assumption perhaps about even like who I might find attractive or who I might like and why I might find, why I might really love this wrestler based on me tweeting, I really like Kenta's blue hair. I'm really glad that he did this to his hair. And like, that's the layers of like anxiety that this trains into you over the years. Like mm-hmm. I have not ever had a moment of peace <laughs> about a hobby since I was in middle school and yeah. I'm 32 now. And middle school was like, you know, what, how old are you in middle school? You're like 11 or 12 or something, right? So that's a lot of life to go through constantly questioning how you speak and making sure that you say it so that you don't sound too enthusiastic and that you can't possibly, like you're saying, Sarah, like hinder the subject so that now no one is interested in talking about the subject anymore. And I have that issue um, to this day. The podcast has helped because Mm -hmm. like the podcast is like going to, uh, you know, in large part, we have found so many supportive, wonderful people. We bring on incredible guests, to be honest with you. Everyone that we've brought on has been tremendous. So we have great people who listen and then also engage with us like the way that you guys do. So this, there's a little bit more safety and speaking Mm -hmm. into like, you know, kind of speaking to you guys and speaking into the void, so to speak. But there's something about sending a tweet about I like Kenta's blue hair that sends me into a spiral of like I can't tweet this because people will be able to perceive something about me that's not true through Mm -hmm. tweeting about Kenta's blue hair something so incredibly innocuous let alone something even larger about something I enjoyed from a match of his then what else could people could you know perceive from that so yes that is that is an eternal struggle and there are a few wrestlers that I care about who there tends to be this bottom line of they have uh, a lot of female fans is what you'll hear. That mm-hmm. is like this subtle dig at these wrestlers yeah. about their popularity. Then you have the tremendous anxiety of like, do you, if I talk about this wrestler, do people only think I like him because he's attractive? But how do you know I find him attractive? And there's the layers of that that all kind of lead into that fangirl sort of discourse and being labeled as that and having anxiety about that. So it's just line too like you can't be too much of a fangirl or be too enthusiastic because then it's only because you want to fuck him or her but also you have to assert yourself enough to establish that you know shit Um, Mm -hmm. yeah it's a real porridge that goldilocks chose situation there i'm glad you mentioned uh that alicia with like wrestlers and and, you know sarah really mentioned it too with like you know you don't want to make these, you know, these faceless masses assume, you know, certain things because it might reflect on, on that wrestler. And I'm going to straight up say it's Sonata, Jake Lee, these 
you know, attractive men who have these incredible stories and, and they're always about, you know, this underdog struggling to the top and finally succeeding. Um, and they're very talented, good looking men with a lot of, a lot of fans all over, but you know, mm-hmm. a lot of, a lot of non cis male fans too. And, you know, um, Puro has a denser audience of, of female fans, female voices crying out. And then these frankly, salty and jealous <laughs> cis male fans they and it reflects on them um and it reflects on these wrestlers and suddenly this male dominated fan base is saying like oh well they're boring and oh they they're talentless but they have female fans so i'm glad that you brought that up alicia because that's a whole nother layer to this this fangirl misogyny also jake lee and sonata and i'm gonna throw tetsia endo in here mm-hmm. too I'll get criticized for having no personality when in fact they just have more nuanced personality than the one trait that like the podcast dude class is allowed to acknowledge which is fire which I think is screaming I think that you had mentioned that in our last episode <laughs> yeah this is why I'm gonna keep going back to it fire is screaming but yeah so they'll write off you know fans who are willing to and can invest in like a, a different emotional journey as just looking at a face when there's like so many more layers to it and I want to say too I want to I want to give Dana the floor as well but I want to say before we move on to that I love when when you know men get into it about well they just have a lot of female fans you know what they know they have a lot of female fans and non-cis man fans because who who do they think is actually paying their bills um, a lot of the people who are going to the shows, going to multiple shows per loop, who are going to their extra events um, and paying tickets for that and then paying into all of their merch, all of that is driven by non-cis male fans. That is where the money is and the wrestlers know it. And if the wrestlers are smart, they won't play into it. And I'm, and I say that not to make them sound disingenuous. There are a lot of wrestlers who have a deep affinity for their fan bases and their fan culture and the fan clubs and all the work that goes into that. Absolutely. And those fans, those fans who are not cis men, they are loyal. They are loyal to these wrestlers when they're injured for months and they aren't doing anything and they're still buying merch and they're still buying things for them and they're still showing up to shows. They are loyal. Who do they think is paying the bills? It is not cis men in that way. Dana, did you have any thoughts or insights on this? Yeah. So, um, Listening to you all talk, I wonder if, if part of the, the difference that I, I experience here as well is just, I don't talk about men, like ever. I don't care. Um, so I, I suspect that adds into it a little bit as well. My experience in this regard is kind of like, there are so many reasons someone who wants to discount my opinion or my choice of words in a translation or, or any of this can already pick that like, if they even see me as a woman in the first place, like for being trans, that it's like, I'm never going to win that person over, not in a million years. And it's the furthest thing from a goal for me. So like, if that person is already not going to pay attention to, I think, then being an overly horny lesbian is like the best reason they could discount my work. So I want someone to see me as like, the most deranged, most overly invested, crazy lesbian woman who could possibly be talking about this stuff. Like, if someone calls me a fangirl, my response is, sorry, the term is actually Himejoshi. Like, 
and and this was definitely a gradual thing it's not like i went into fandom like with this as my attitude but when i was translating my press conference and stuff i kind of reached a point where i was just getting bored just pasting text and started taking screenshots and stuff because i was like oh i want to like it'll it'll make it easier to read it makes it look nicer but then taking screenshots was way more work than i was expecting so i started putting like little jokes and like outfit reviews and stuff in the captions um to entertain my, myself more than anything at first um and and people responded to it way way better than i was expecting so that kind of became a thing and that was where i started putting myself in my translations and then i started to see comments like i saw on reddit once someone posted a screenshot from uh, a tam promo about Risa Sarah and she said something about like she wanted Risa Sarah to also remember her physically with her body and she was commenting on like like her scars but saying that she also wanted Risa to like bear a mark from her and someone commented like if I've learned anything from from Dana's translations is that whatever she said in Japanese probably came across as much more horny um and that was like a crowning achievement for me I was I was so proud of that because I am coming at it from from the perspective of a lesbian and people seeing me as like oh she looks at this from too like too queer of an area like that's exactly what i want to do that's what i want you to take this from me that is what i'm trying to highlight because no one else is talking about it enough so for me it's very different where if, if someone discounts my opinion because of that i do not care because that is 100 where i want to be coming from um and and like i said way earlier i'm not even on twitter very much but it's at the point now where I'm kind of like single-handedly trying to build the the Tumblr lesbian Joshi fandom. And it's going surprisingly well. There's a picture of Micah that has like 10,000 notes right now. And I, I got an ask from someone that was like, hey, I'm a lesbian and you have me considering like checking out Joshi Wrestling. Can you post me some highlights of like the gayest moments? And it was like, I've made it. Like, I'm finally here. I think that's... That's really heartening to hear. Like, just sort of, thank you for sharing that. <laughs> I'm a little speechless because um, I, I struggle a lot as, as a fan translator and um, someone who translates mostly for just like the same couple of men, but, but particularly one. And, um, and I, I'm constantly afraid of being, you know, seen a certain way or, or seeming like my investment in these storylines and storylines that I really talk about all the time. I worry about how people perceive the way that I talk about them. So to hear, you know, like you talking about like, yes, I want this to come across as, as queer as possible. I want this to be my voice as well as the, um, the voice of the wrestlers. And I, I think that's just really important to say because that's that's really a, a school of translation thought is that, you know, you as a translator are not just translating the text. You're not just pasting it. You are also an active reader. And that's what translators need to be is active readers who are um, also translating their interpretations. Actually, I think you are the one who said it the best on, on Twitter is that translating is in its own way creative writing. Yes. Um, yeah. You, you are compa- yeah. I mean, that's, that's it. That's exactly what it is. And I, I, that has always stuck out in my mind because you just said it so beautifully and to hear that from you that, you know, you want to turn away these people who will be turned away by it because this is your interpretation of the text and this is who you are. And this is what the text is saying. And, and I just, 
thank you for sharing that. That's it's just really heartening to hear and important to hear. And, and yeah, so yeah, I'm, I'm listeners also feel that too. Yeah, I'm I'm really glad. I really hope someone listening like like uh, in, enjoys that um, and follows me on Tumblr. Um, <laughs> we'll link it. I'm sure. I'm sure. Like we could probably do an entire podcast just on translation theory. But yeah, it's like you know, so many people. So the thing you're talking about about how the the fear that you talking about this someone like this would get them discounted by someone listening to your analysis. It's like coming from the other direction again and and because I, I want people to see it as as being queer and lesbian and talking about women rather than men is like so many people discount Tam for being too horny or too sexual um like like the hate I have seen people lay on her is blows my mind and not just because she's my favorite wrestler so my thing is like I want to force people as much as possible to not be able to look away from the fact that no, she also is appealing to women in a very specific way and is doing like very specific things that are definitely not directed towards men and not about men. And you'll probably have to edit this next part out, but it's like Tam is a Yuri fan. Tam has been caught posting stuff on main. Tam has been, Tam has liked Yuri art. The number one Meltier shipper on all of Twitter tags a lot of their posts as this is Yuri content and Tam has retweeted them like this is uh, such an intentional thing from her and I need people to know that that's so interesting I'm just (laughs) I'm fascinated and I'm also like reflecting on how different our weeks are because you're doing all of this which is so incredibly fun and like speaks to like who you are and that's (laughs) this stuff doesn't like speak to me but I spent like I don't know, maybe like 45 minutes going over the same CM Punk monologue, like over and over and over again to make sure I had what I needed for my own notes so I could talk about Kenta's side of that build. And it's just interesting how there is, there's something of me in that, but it's not the same way as what you're doing, Dana. So that's really, that's, that's, that's really fascinating. But also, no, I, I love that. I would just like love to that add that episode again. Yeah. But that was a really good monologue. And you need to check out the Forbidden Door review. Not, not Punk's. My, what I said in the Forbidden oh, yeah, Door. Of course, yeah. Your monologue on Punk's monologue. Yeah. Okay. Check out the Forbidden Door review. All right. For Alicia's um, thoughts on on CM Punk and Kenta, because there is a lot of you in that, and and again, just a lot of the times it just comes down to, and and Sarah had spoken on this too, just damning what what a lot of these people think, and yeah. and putting your thoughts out there because people need our voices. Also, yeah, I just want to add that um, when I started watching wrestling again in 2018, I briefly subscribed to Stardom World and didn't click with it at the time. Um, And it's really only been through social media posting from queer women that I've been like, oh, okay, yeah. (laughs) Like that has opened my eyes. I think I said this to you last time, Dana, but like Stardom has always been the promotion where it's like, if I could just get an extra like couple hours every day, I would put Stardom on. But I probably wouldn't necessarily feel that way if I hadn't found your Twitter, even though I wasn't watching Stardom, I still followed you. I knew you were trans. I knew that like, and I wanted to follow you because of that. I knew you were a translator. I wanted to follow you because of that. But it was the way that you specifically spoke to the promotion and the way that you translate that spoke to me. And I was like, even though I can't watch Stardom, I'm going to listen to Dana narrate the experience of stardom because that is compelling and it's very powerful. And that's why you're so important and your voice is important. I don't care what um, any of these other like men are saying about stardom. Like to me, like we, me and Rachel frequently have the conversation and about Sarah as well. It's always like, we have all these questions about 
um, like just very general things happening in Joshi writ large. And it's like, well, why aren't people knocking down Dana and Sarah's doors to ask them these questions? Because like, we want to ask you those questions. So that's, but that's because we want to hear more of your voices and not sort of the, the, the loudest voices that are sort of controlling the narrative right now. That means the world to me. Thank you so much. A big part of why I do it is like, so when I started watching Stardom, I still thought I was a man. Like I had no clue. I didn't even, I hadn't even considered like, oh, maybe I'm non-binary or anything. And and wrestling and Stardom played a big part in like cracking my egg and very specifically like Tam storylines. And like, I'm not sure it's normal for men to relate to these storylines this much in this way. So like, that's where my personal investment comes from and how it relates to, to me gender-wise and sexuality-wise and stuff as well. And so that's why it's so important to me to like show people the way stardom comes across to me. And like, this is what I take from those storylines. I'm not just stardom. Like it's, it's something that I think is in all wrestling. It just happens to be that stardom has kind of the highest percentage of that, that I can dig into out of any wrestling that I found. But yeah, that's specifically why I want, why I want to spread that and why I want to try and be vocal about it is because it's like, at first, it was like I had one friend who saw Stardom the same way I did. And it was something that was sort of at the back of the, my mind. And they helped kind of bring it forward in talking about these things with them. And then when it became like not enough people see this, but I am positive that it's there. It became about like, like I want to try and share this. I want people to understand that like this is here for you if that's what you're looking for too. Yeah, I think what's so important about what you're saying is it speaks to the need for people who are either listening to this podcast or just people in general who haven't even found us, but it's that need for people to diversify their media. People need to think about what they're listening to and and go to other sources. Like there shouldn't just be one place that you're going to to learn about any one thing. You should be going and and broadening who you're you're listening to and really taking a look at who you're listening to. Like are you only listening to like people who virtually look and sound the same because they have the same exact backgrounds? They, you know, they're all predominantly white cis het men. Is that the only people you're getting your information of from one from one place on one thing? diversify your media because you're going to end up getting so many different perspectives um, on your media that's going to broaden your understanding of that media. But that's something that's so hard to permeate through wrestling, um, particularly when we're dominated right now in a very pervasive way by people being very interested in paying $5 to a Patreon to get backstage news and scoops, um, whether it be on the Western side of things or on the Japanese side of things. I will say that if you're paying $5 to learn scoops um, from people that are doing like the Japanese side of things, you're wasting your money. There's no scoops there. They don't have any intel. There are no sources. They've got like what, a 0.5% like hit rate on on their their news? Like it's brutal. It's brutal. And that's 0.5% Yeah, you want to talk about generous. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I think that there are some very clever bits of fan fiction that we've seen over over the past couple of years. In fact, we talk about it in our next stream part one episode, some of the best fan fiction that I've seen recently um, coming out of some of those. But regardless- I would love that like genuine podcast, like actual <laughs> best fan. That'd be so good. <laughs> we might be able to do an episode. I don't know. I already have like two more ideas for us coming out of this one. But I, I again, it just, it speaks to that need to diversify your media. And we're kind of in a time right now, again, where we're dominated by- those guys that are that are making money off of backstage scoops and all of that stuff like that's what is 
that's what's in the uh, that's what's in vogue, right? I think that that will change. Um, I talk about this with a couple other people who have been around even longer than me, and maybe Sarah, you can speak to this as well. But this wasn't always like this. I think it will eventually cycle off. I just don't know when that's going to be. But I think that's why and this is what I try to remind myself because I can be um, incredibly frustrated about some of this stuff on a, on a regular basis. But I think that's why it's more important than ever that we kind of just um, we have to kind of just keep going through the different things that we're covering and the way that we're covering it and and kind of be that alternative, so to speak, for people um, and ride the wave of this, because I don't think that this culture of people paying for backstage news is going to last forever. It wasn't a th- a, like a big thing when I first started watching wrestling in like 2014, 2015. Mm-hmm. I think it will eventually taper off. It's just a matter of us sort of riding the wave of that. Well, in the 2000s, you could just go to 411 Mania. You didn't even have to pay for anything unless you were really obsessed with Dave Meltzer. But he would appear on like live audio wrestling that my friend hosted. So, you know, we'd get the little, yeah. Dan I remember Mal- when they folded. Oh my God. <laughs> Dan LaMelco-Bransky is an old friend of mine and also how I got into the Pillow Fight League. So, <laughs> yeah. Sarah, I didn't know that about you. I didn't know you knew him. Oh, really? Yeah. No. Well, we met at Chart Magazine. I once um, drunkenly put a sleeper hold on a colleague of ours to try to impress Dan at a chart Christmas party. Oh, I can still hear his voice in my head from listening it's to him. Very distinct. Very, yeah. very distinctive. And he did the um, audiobook for Eggshells. Oh, okay. Yeah. That's fascinating. The last time I saw him was at the uh, OWE shows in Toronto. I was babbling something about El Lindemann to him. <laughs> Oh no, Hell Lindemann. Oh no, yeah, we're not getting <laughs> <laughs> If you want to hear our takes on El Lindemann, uh, yeah. tune in next month for yeah. <laughs> Anyway. My take on him is he's my height. <laughs> <laughs> when he was at, him, yeah. I'll just say as an aside, when he was at the All Japan conference that just happened and he was in his suit, he looked like um, when people like are doing Halloween costumes for their baby. That's what he looked like to me. <laughs> And I mean that with a lot of love, but that's what he looks yeah. like to me. Wait, that's because, yeah, we're, we're not like full adult size. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, anyway. it's true. Anyway, like to get back to the 411 live audio wrestling point is that it, it wasn't behind a paywall at the time. And that's like media across the board in the 2000s versus now. Um, and I don't know whether it's just a bunch of like, people who thought they were in the know whose opinions have calcified over this time or it's people trying to affect more of an air of authority that they have so that they can con people into spending this money on Patreon. Um, But it also like has this gross cloud that hangs over everything else they do too because in order to be an expert you have to be better than everyone else. So they're not even engaging with the talent in a way that's interesting because they have to know better at all times yeah and and it gets worse with the joshi talent i've found and that it's either like the completely dismissive i don't need to engage with this because it's just fetish for dirty old men or whether it's this new wave of people and it's worse in tokyo joshi pro than others who have decided that like they like it but only in a way where they're talking about the women as like sort of talent that must be molded into their own vision um and so it's just like all these different layers of I know better that I find is a really boring way to engage in any art 
it's smug, it's wrong. And it just like it diminishes the talent that you're trying to highlight and make other people appreciate if you always think that you're better. I think I'm thinking back to what Alicia was saying, um, especially like about diversifying your media mm-hmm. and and why, you know, a lot of a lot of voices like Dana's are, you know, so important and and getting these things. And one thing that Alicia and I have talked about that I sort of want to bring up as a point is that um there's this phenomenon among, you know, we we obviously have our um cis male voices. We already have we always have our backstage voices, but there's also something that's sort of this phenomenon of the acceptable minority that has sort of become pervasive in this fandom as well. And there are undeniably women in this community with platforms. And many of these women have really incredibly valuable things to say. However, there is just this common set of traits that most, if not all of these voices have. They're usually white, they're usually cis, and they're usually conventionally attractive. These women are deemed as marketable and acceptable to this male-dominated media, and that's sort of how they get their platforms and how they get their pedestals. And like I said, I, I'm these women mean well. They really do, and, and they often have really great things to say. There was a great article that uh, we had read um Stephanie Chase is her name it is Stephanie Chase I'll just Um, say like it is important to read Stephanie Chase's article she talks about uh, I I think his name is Lee McAteer he's the guy that owns Progress Wrestling and it came out I think over the weekend and it was her experience as someone who is pre-established in um the wrestling industry and doing what she does it was her experience dealing with him in a conversation where he was like openly and flagrantly misogynistic to her and it was a very valid article to write for her and I think it was important for people to read and hear and see but the things that always come up for me when I read things like that is it tends to be even if it's not explicit in the language they always read to me things like this as being inherently about cis women and we know that there are not just cis women involved in talking about wrestling so it's not to me very inclusive of everyone who was involved in talking about wrestling and like Rachel was saying, it's about it's about white women. It's about people who are conventionally attractive, which brings up a whole host of issues. Even within that, is not very inclusive. So that's it's important to read Stephanie's article, but also to keep those things in mind. Mm-hmm. So that sort of brings us, and that was beautifully said, Alicia. Thank you very much. Um, that sort of brings me to my question: Is is it possible to fight against a system while still benefiting from it? Like this acceptable minority do and how do we sort of break out of it and and of course there are some obvious answers and sort of elevating the voices of um, other people but there it it just brings up a lot of questions and I was curious about your thoughts on it I do think that this that wrestling in general you know we are all white people on this podcast so they're you know right then and there that says a lot and like the majority of these podcasts are dominated by white people and white voices white experiences whatever what have you so right then and there there is there is a issue with that in this space I do think that with the way that we talk about misogyny and issues with women and there not being enough women and representation for women in wrestling again just falls down to that we're only talking about cis women who are conventionally attractive. And I think that's an issue. I don't know how to address that myself at all. I want there to be 
so many more people who can come to the table and speak to wrestling as an art, as something that they love, as that they're passionate about, because the more people we have talking about this, the more perspectives we have, the more that we learn, the more that we take from each other. That is the beauty of talking about something like pro wrestling. Do I know how to get there? Absolutely not. I don't. And that's the, I guess the concern when I like, and this is not about Stephanie herself, but the concern I see when I see like an article like that take off, it's very brave to call out the owner of progress wrestling, but that is inherently like the way that, you know, her career and her platform and who she is, all of that is packaged beautifully for her to, you know, create, to create the kind of support that people like to kind of give to someone like that. Whereas there has been situations for marginalized people who like to talk about wrestling that has not come for them in the same exact way. I don't know how we address those things as a community. Often, I don't feel like we actually have a community. I know it's the internet wrestling community. I don't often feel like we have anything that even resembles a community. We have these pockets of people who all sort of speak. A lot of us who are queer and trans often speak together. And that's why, you know, a lot of us tend to, um, to talk offline and then do things like this, obviously. But in terms of something broader, in terms of taking on an, an, an industry and then um, affecting change, I have no idea how to address a lot of that. Because I think that what frustrates me the most is that it often falls to those of us who have sub- 500 followers to make us take a stand um, when we actually need the support of cis men who have the platforms, who have thousands of followers and people listening to them to actually be the ones to start the change. And they are often the ones who do not. I've probably made, and I don't want to give myself a ton of credit here. I've still am taking baby steps, like a little more headway in terms of like autism circles and my autism writing than any of the wrestling stuff. And like, I'm not saying I'm a role model here, but there are like little things I try to do to if I am taking a stand against something. Like when I wrote about the terrible experience of editing my first book, I made sure that there was a paragraph in there um, that explained that part of the reason that I was saying this is because I was able to say it um, and that I didn't want to speak for anyone else, but I wanted to put it out there because at least I had a barrier that maybe someone else wouldn't have. And also mm -hmm. like more ability to have fought back. So if this is what I went through, it would probably be worse for anyone more marginalized. And that's it, tricky because you don't want to do that fucking like late day exo Jane white girl essay where you're like, the whole essay is still the white girl story, but there's one paragraph that's like, oh, here's my privilege acknowledgement. And then you go back to your story anyway. Right. Like it has to be more nuanced and like actually connected to what you're trying to say than that. And I'm not saying I've done it perfectly. I've probably screwed up a lot, but I, I, that's where I try to put some of my effort in. And also if you are getting opportunities to be interviewed and appear on stuff and it's not for you, or maybe you've done too many, keep like a loose Rolodex. You don't have to like reach out to people and be like, I'm collecting you as a potential source, but have people whose opinions you genuinely value and follow that you would be able to recommend and to be like, this is the person you should actually talk to for that. Like try to reach out to them. I can try to be an intermediary if you want. Like just, you're not gonna be perfect about it, especially if you're like privileged in any way, but you can take little steps along the way, even if you're screwing up the big picture or you're powerless in the big picture to try to make sure that you're not only dragging yourself up with whatever fight you're doing. 
And I think um, sort of when it comes to that too, um, Dana has been talking about this pretty much all episode is that she's sort of going elsewhere <laughs> to to build these communities and and um, create these voices and put together, you know, um, a, a lesbian Joshi fan army on, on <laughs> Tumblr. And, and that's very funny in, in speech. But when you think about it, you know, um, you're, you're finding these queer communities and you're reaching out to them and you are diversifying the voices. And um, that's also a very important thing to do because we need voices like that. And, and even just, you know, having your, your discord server and, and finding more people and, and there's, there's something to be said about that as well. So there are steps forward to take, but it does come down to a lot of times acknowledging the privileges and, um, and issues. And, and obviously I benefit from privileges too, being a white person. So it's, it's just, um, it comes down to, and I think, um, Sarah, you really, really said it, having that loose Rolodex and, and being able to build those communities and find these different voices that we can elevate and, um, and even just hand it off to, <laughs> because sometimes we just, we, we aren't, we aren't equipped to talk about these things. And um, Alicia, you and I have actually turned down um, opportunities to talk on podcasts because we, we just, we don't have lived experiences. We don't have the experience of being a black wrestling fan. And, you know, the, those people have a lot of experience that they deserve and they mm-hmm. need to speak on. Um, and then and that's just what it comes down And there's down people to. that they can ask. It's really sometimes shocking to me to see that the way people find fans to cover things for their podcast for their website is just to do a general open call because especially in uh I don't know Elon's Twitter it's impossible now for a tweet to even really get seen by anyone but the very like closest people to um your account so it always shocks me when I see things like that because it's like do you really not have that Rolodex of people that you can kind of go to or that that you haven't scouted as someone who maybe you're not very close with them, but you've noted that they have this specific level of experience and interest and maybe they post very interesting things about what you're looking for. That's how we've met the majority of the people that have now become regular people on Kickout is we noticed that they posted uh, or they're posting a lot about something that we want to bring them on for. We're interested in in their story based off of that. And then we brought them on. And now, you know, the vast majority of you have come on multiple times. So there you go. That's, that's how we tend to uh, find people because there's are lots of subjects that me and Rachel are never going to be able to speak to. And we would rather hand the mic to you than stumble our way through explaining it poorly. I could never speak to the things that, that Dana or Sarah can speak to so eloquently and so beautifully and have tons of research done and, and Dana with her translation. I could never do it, but I would rather hand you the mic so you can talk about it. Then people can follow Dana on Tumblr and go to Sarah's Twitter account. I think that's, that's far more rewarding. Some of the best experiences of this podcast has been being able to pass the mic. That's, that's been wonderful. Be like selfishly motivated by it. You're getting the like learning experience out of it. Like you're, you get to enjoy something through different eyes. It's not just Feeding your place. It's learning something new. Dana made me cry over Melt here today. There's <laughs> <laughs> that. <laughs> and I'm trying so to get yeah, Melt here merch. It's like the yeah. best name ever. I can't get that out of my head. <laughs> yeah. So, so yeah, we, we're getting a lot of things out of this. Um, and that's always, that's always what it comes down to. But yeah, I think, um, Alicia, you said that really beautifully is that it, it comes down to uh, passing the mic. 
And we're really, really happy that we passed the mic to you guys. Um, if you have any closing thoughts or um, anything you'd like to say, and then of course, go ahead, plug yourself one more time so that everybody can find you. Um, and yeah, go ahead, Sarah, if you want to start us off. Well, you know, like as a 41-year-old woman myself, um, I would like a lot of Tokyo Joshi pro fans to back off of the founding women and not like act like they're past their peak or should have moved on by now. Um, they built this. They know when they're ready to move on. They're not really holding anyone back. They have raised those next generations. And it's really obscene to talk about a lot of women, many of whom haven't hit the 30 yet has passed their prime. I know that Joshi can be young. I know there is a certain amount of panic about how short these careers can be and hoping that you get to see your fate have a moment to shine. But those careers are never going to be extended if like the international fan base is going to be pushing this hard for women to be put to pasture so young. Related to that, that's like um, with, with Saki Akai recently announcing her retirement, the way people talk about her, her tenure career, which is great, like it's awesome that she wrestled for 10 years, um, as like this griddled, grizzled veteran um, who, you know, who's been around, who's done it all. And it's like she even mostly wrestled in a men's promotion. Like if a man had the exact same career as her and retired in the exact same way, people would be mourning how short his career was and how he never reached his peak. Oh, um, absolutely. And like, and it's like, just so, I don't know if I should say heartbreaking or tiring. A bit of both, probably. <laughs> and I mean, yeah. it's also exhausting in her case because it's only been in the past few years, past few years that part of her storyline was that she was still learning and had so much to go. Like, yeah. it's right there in the text. We all watched it. And in her Tospo article, it, this fascinated me because it was, they said the conversation was between her and a DDT colleague. And I'm fascinated to see who this, this colleague yeah. was. But uh, she was having a conversation with this male DDT colleague who was asking her, well, are you retiring because you're you're getting married, more or less was the question. And she had like a reaction to this and was like very offended that she would be asked that and said, no, like I'm not getting married. I'm never getting married. And like went on this whole thing about it and said like, would you ask me this if I was a man? And it was, it was really shocking to me that, again, I don't know who the DDT colleague was. Toastwood doesn't make note of this, but it's fascinating that a colleague of hers, um, you know, doesn't know what her status is enough yeah. to even make the assumption um, that that's what it could, could be just because I know that there has been other Joshi wrestlers who have retired because they are there. They are getting married. That has, that has absolutely happened, but to, push that onto um, Saki Akai is to make it a stereotype of women. And that's not fair to her. Mm -hmm. um, so I was really surprised by that comment and that playing out the way it did on Twitter. But it speaks to, I think, a lot of what we've kind of been touching on in the latter half of this episode of just how women are treated so differently in wrestling. Even if you are in the industry, it doesn't like, I, we didn't even touch on Veda Scott and Veda's experiences and what they've been going through, the hell that they, they go through to, to be taken seriously and to be given the gigs that they deserve uh as a, as oh, a yeah. really talented commentator Veda's amazing and at commentary yeah Veda is so good at commentary and Veda is non-binary and queer and does not get the respect that they deserve <laughs> and so it's it's just it's unbelievable but yeah that really was was surprising to me with Saki yeah and I think I've been trying to sort of take a little bit of solace in the fact that like we are very gradually you know we're seeing more Joshi wrestlers hitting 30 or in in their mid 30s in some cases even 
we're seeing more Joshi wrestlers go for longer. We're seeing more Joshi wrestlers like like between Saki Akai, between Himika um, just a little while ago, seeing more wrestlers who do retire earlier than than I wish they would, but they're retiring just because they want to do something else. It's not mm-hmm. because they're getting married. It's not because someone's making them retire. It's not because they're too old. Um, it's because they have the freedom to just go and try and do something else. So it's like, I feel like there is some progress and I'm trying to sort of view that as the silver lining um because it's not a lot of progress but it's something yeah when you know that it's actually on their own terms that definitely helps and on the other side we have hyper masao who broke all sorts of boundaries by staying yeah uh, by explicitly making her marriage part of the storyline so that you know fans could actually live through that whole struggle and that decision making process yeah that, that that gives me hope for the future too yeah it's so weird that there's a level of um of like tragedy porn to the wrestlers who perhaps the male wrestlers who stay too long and clearly are fighting through uh levels of injuries and there is something i think that people romanticize in this as much as they feel like they need to stop right now and leave the okay. ring but when it comes to the women it's the tone changes entirely. Um, it's not a coincidence or a mistake, obviously. It's just, you know, like standard misogyny. But oh yeah. Fascinating it's, to note nonetheless. Yeah, because you know, there there can be um like prominent stars who are moving pretty slowly um for ways that I might argue aren't entirely about the wear and tear they have given to this business. It's because they also made bad choices about their healing process. Um, and that's like valorized and aspirational um but if a woman were to do that it's not sexy so yeah beautifully said and dana do you have any closing thoughts for us no i think i'm all thought out i i pretty much laid it all out there throughout the throughout the podcast just yeah if we're if we're plugging social media again um my twitter is it's dana now and i pretty much just post blog updates there uh, I have a, a Tumblr at It's Dana Now as well, and that's sort of uh, functions the same as my Twitter, but on Tumblr. And then my personal Tumblr is, is Nakano Tamu, and I've talked plenty about, about what I'm working on over there. So, Sarah, go ahead and give us a plug. All right. I am Fodder Figure, F-O-D-D-E-R Figure um, on Twitter, Instagram, and Blue Sky, for what it's worth. Um, yes, so come see me randomly post many 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 gifts of Tetsuya Endo falling down and selling and sometimes other stuff also please buy my second book work it out a mood boosting exercise guide for people who just want to lie down Um, has a few brief mentions of wrestlers including Miyu Watanabe so there's the Joshi content Um, yeah and then please review it because it's a struggling a little bit please help me (laughs) (laughs) it's a wonderful book Um, please buy it it's super helpful and I love it so that should be Thank endorsement you. enough. Um, please do. If you um, if you review Sarah's book, um, DM me. I'll send you something. Rachel, anything else? Oh, I was going to hand it to you to take it home. All right, I'll take it home. I'm gonna. I forgot to bring this up earlier in the podcast. I have it screenshot because I remember this from yesteryear, but then I found it again somewhat recently. But I wanted to mention this this tweet from actually. I'm not going to say the name. It's a prominent pro posting account but I always remembered it because it kind of played into this anxiety about myself and being a fan of all of this but 
this tweet is, uh, I'll paraphrase, is talking about fake Pearl girls. And this was posted back in, in 2015. And this is probably around the rise of like New Japan world and there's being more access to the wrestling and therefore more people um, getting involved in Japanese pro wrestling. And this is just lamenting these fake Pearl girls joining uh, these spaces. They don't know anything about ordering Jeff Lynch DVDs via email. And it's like, well, that never died. Um, like, you can literally, I just talked to Jeff yesterday. So, um, but I like, I, uh, I never got that out of my head, the fake Pearl girls thing, right? Like that always made me feel um, immediately unwelcome in a new mm-hmm. space, which is always great, right? When you're coming to a new space. But I just want to say, if you're a, a non-cis man listening to this podcast, um, you're not a fake Pearl girl. Love Pearl fucking hard love joshi really fucking hard and don't anyone tell you that you're a fake fan or that you're a a fangirl whatever interpretation of that love this shit really fucking hard talk about how much you love it you will find other really really cool people and we need more people being passionate and talking about what they love so don't let anyone tell you that you're a fake pro girl that's my message also yeah yeah. Also, uh, please give us a five-star review on your podcast platform of choice. We would really appreciate that. We appreciate everyone who's been doing that for us recently. We're kind of overwhelmed by how many we've gotten recently. And it's, we take it super seriously. We take it as a message that you guys like what we're doing. And we hope that you will continue to support us in that way. And I think I've, I think that's it. Right. I think that's it as well. You can go ahead and follow me, Rachel, at Milky Star. That's M. I I K Y star until I get a blue sky and then I'll be milky once again. (laughs) I forgot my socials too. (laughs) Yeah. I was about to hand it off to you, Um, but you can also follow Alicia at Shiranui Kai with two eyes. Um, And I believe that's also two eyes on blue sky. Yes, it is. (laughs) And you can follow us on kick out. Thank you guys so much for listening. And uh, we will talk to you soon.